Hello, you are listening to RPM Podcast. It's the third episode and today we're going to focus on the war in Ukraine and more specifically on the EU's response to displacement which it has caused. We will take a close and critical look at the current migration policies of many EU member states and explore in what ways they differ from what we have seen in previous challenges Europe has faced with refugees. We are going to ask where to draw the thin line between hypocrisy and humanity and what lessons we can learn in the current situation. What role does civil society play in the process of hosting and welcoming refugees from Ukraine? And what other far-reaching consequences could the war have and thereby indirectly affect migration to Europe? Stick around for all of this and more in episode 3 of RPM Podcast. My name is Vincent and I am your host. Welcome! My guest for today is Melissa Siegel. She is a professor of migration studies at UNU Merritt and Maastricht University. I first asked Melissa what migration studies actually are and how she ended up with it as her field of expertise. Um, so migration studies are really the study of uh, the movement of people around the world. It's funny because sometimes people ask me if I study birds or, you know, other kind of animals. No, but um, migration studies in this context is, is really the movement of people and really looking at the reasons people migrate and the effects of that migration. So, I mean, I would say very broadly, um, that's kind of what migration studies is. Um, I interestingly got into the field of migration studies kind of um, in a strange sort of backwards way, I actually started first working on remittances or the money that migrants send back to their, their families or to their countries of origin, usually. Um, and first, by working on this money and looking at the effects of this money on the countries of origin of where migrants come from, I kind of worked from that then back into migration. So starting first from these kind of monetary effects and then really looking more at migration in general and why people migrate and all the different effects around that migration, both on countries of destination, but also countries of origin. So I think that's kind of how I got I got started in the field. And it's, you know, one of these fields that you can kind of relate to almost anything. It's an area that you never get bored. I always tell people, tell me what you're interested in, and I'll tell you how it's related to migration. So really, um, sometimes people think of it as a more, you know, targeted area of expertise, but I think of it as an area that links to everything else in the world. Okay, awesome. And I think that makes you an ideal guest for today. Um, so the point of departure for our conversation is this following observation, right? The, the outbreak of war in Ukraine has, has prompted a massive and unprecedented wave of solidarity with refugees escaping the conflict. And EU member states are currently hosting them in very large numbers. And there is a great deal of agreement in politics, but also in large parts of civil society that help is the only right thing to do for now. And I think that's true. Uh, it is great, fascinating, and also moving to see for me how everyone seems to be working together now, fighting for the same cause, if you will. And yet, I think this response seems somehow unusual when you consider how many EU states had taken a much harder line on immigration policy uh, just a few weeks earlier. 
Let me just put it in numbers. UNHCR estimates the, that until now, some 4.6 million refugees have fled Ukraine to neighboring countries. And of these 4.6 million, 2.6 million are currently in Poland alone. And there and in, in many other member states of the EU, these numbers are increasing by the hour. But let us look back for a moment on the so-called uh, 2015 uh, refugee crisis, where in that year and the following years, only between one and two million refugees entered the EU and that the people at the time uh, who came mainly from, from war-torn Middle Eastern countries had to face a fundamentally different situation. They were facing hatred in civil society and, and also rejection in politics in many instances. And for, for the sake of illustration, uh, let's look at two statements from Marine Le Pen, who is currently a candidate in the runoff of the French uh, presidential election. And the first is, she said that in 2015, I quote, uh, our country has neither the means nor the energy nor the desire to be more generous than it can be with the world's misery, unquote. And then on, on March 5th, 2022, she said this, I say it without any doubt, France is honored to take part in the reception of Ukrainian refugees. And for my part, I am ready to do so. And I believe that the French are ready to, unquote. I translated this roughly. Uh, in my opinion, these statements exemplify a paradigm shift uh, that can be observed across EU countries and also across the political spectrum. Now, in various television appearances she made during her campaign this year, she justified that position by drawing on France's obligations under the Geneva Convention of 1951. But we'll come to that in a moment. But first, I would like to know, did this whole development I just described uh, come as a surprise to you? Or is the situation this time just so fundamentally different compared to other and also earlier challenges EU countries had to face with migration? Okay, so that's a good question. Um, in the run-up to this, and when we saw that this was a definite possibility, as in it was a definite possibility that Russia would invade and we could see, you know, um, uh, quite a massive number of refugees fleeing Ukraine, um, I have to say that um, my hope was that we would see the situation that we have seen, um, you know, because it's a different Type of person is not the right way to say it. Um, it's a, a different group of people, as in they are Europeans, they're white, they mainly come from Christian backgrounds. Um, Ukrainians also have quite a lot of ties already in many neighboring countries, um, you know, familial ties, cultural ties, historical ties. So my hope was that this would make a difference in a positive way. Um, you know, sometimes I said, should I, you know, actually hope that, you know, Europe is indeed racist, like, you know, many have kind of accused Europe of in the past, um, because then at least they'll let in the Ukrainians, you know. So for myself, um, I was already torn with how I even felt about the situation. But my hope was that we would see the solidarity that we have seen. And I thought that there were a number, number of reasons, which I have just mentioned, why we might see that solidarity. Um, and I also don't want to be too critical here and just say, okay, well, Europe's racist and that's why we see, we're seeing what we see now. No, I also think I should be a little bit more careful and a little bit more um, you know, thoughtful with my answer there, because I do think there are differences with regard to the links that there are there already with a lot of Eastern European countries. You know, a lot of um, 
people already have family, relatives, uh, uh, friends uh, that are in these, especially in these neighboring countries that have been particularly hostile in the past to um, migrants or other um, refugees or, or asylum seekers. So I do, do want to um, be careful there. And I think the other thing that's different is that I saw a lot of these countries that are bordering, that have a border with um, Ukraine, have also experienced Russian aggression in the past. And so in that way, they can really, um, you know, there is really this solidarity aspect and they really can sympathize and empathize with the situation of, of uh, Ukrainians where other situations further afield in other parts of the world, maybe they could not feel the same direct um, feelings uh, of solidarity. I mean, obviously, you would always hope that one would, but there is also just reality. And I think this kind of more shared history and a shared history of the specific links with Russia or, you know, past Russia, I think are also really important here. Yeah, we're going to look at those kinship-based uh, uh, arguments uh, later on. Um, but what I'm very interested in also is understanding the legal situation of Ukrainian refugees. And I would like to illustrate this again with a statement this time made by uh, uh, Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban when he visited a reception center for Ukrainian refugees in early March. And he said, we know the difference between a migrant and a refugee. Migrants are stopped. Refugees refugees get help. Now, knowing Mr. Orban's usual anti-migration rhetoric, I tend to assume that he implies that refugees who escape war, say, in, in the Middle East, aren't real refugees. And uh, the decisive document on this is, is, of course, the Geneva Convention, which Marine Le Pen has also been drawing on a lot lately. Um, now, I, I, I'm asking myself, is this just a cynical political move or is there actually a legal basis in international law for distinguishing between a refugee from one country such as, I don't know, Syria or Afghanistan and one from Ukraine? So absolutely not. <laughs> um, the Geneva Convention is, is very clear. Um, and uh, the basis for receiving refugee status or for being considered a refugee um, is really that you um, should be persecuted because of your race, religion, um, you know, uh, uh, a number, a number of factors. And none of those have to do with um with which exact country you come from and that, you know, it's really about the conditions that you face on the ground. And if there's a well-founded fear um, and, and we have seen that in the Syrian case, we've seen that in the Afghan case, we've seen it in the Iraq case. We have, we see it now in the Ukrainian case. So there is no legal basis to completely differentiate people just based on um the country that they come from when the underlying circumstances are the same. So, no, I mean, obviously this statement is completely false. And, uh, um, and I think Orban in many cases likes to make his own definitions uh, for things and the, uh, you know, his own way of seeing things. <laughs> Okay, so so generalizing this, do you think that then this selective treatment of refugees could be called a, an indirect violation of international law? Well, I, this is where it gets a little bit tricky because it also depends on 
when what is actually happening. I mean, I, I do personally think that, um, you know, many countries have been in direct violation of international law. So, I mean, clearly, like the, for the formal definition of who a refugee is or who, uh, who should be able to be um, given refugee access is someone who is unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin, owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion. All right. And there are also a number of let's say, key principles within um, the having refugee status. So one of them is non-refoulement. And what that actually means is that refugees or really anyone should not be returned to a country where they face serious threats to their life or their freedom. And we know plenty of countries within Europe, especially, um, you know, more on the eastern side, have done these kinds of things. Um, uh, also issues of pushback. So someone comes into your territory, they don't even have the opportunity to put an asylum claim and are pushed back into another country or into international waters or, you know, what else? We know that these things happen too, and they are also direct violations of international law. And then <laughs> there's also supposed to be non-discrimination. So that's another core principle of uh, um, refugee status. And that means that refugees should receive equal treatment as other immigrants and citizens and should not be discriminated based on gender, age, disability, sexuality, and others. And we see also that in plenty of countries around the world, there is discrimination um, uh, and, and they are not treated the same as other immigrant groups in the country or definitely not as citizens in many cases. So, I mean, there, there are a number of ways here that many of these governments have gone directly against many of these core principles previously and have now made a 180 degree turn when it comes to the case of the Ukrainians. Okay, so that's the political and, and legal aspect uh, of the whole thing. But I'd also like to look at some more emotional considerations. And, and in doing so, we will get a little closer to civil society. <laughs> This phenomenon that suddenly there is a room for solidarity, empathy, and, and a quest for adherence to international law, what we saw in the very extreme cases of Le Pen and Auburn, is, I think, not only confined to these right-wing politicians to whom all this might even serve as an underpinning, of their usual anti-migration stance, but it appears to me as if this reflects a pattern which extends uh, in somewhat different way to civil society. Think, for example, of the Ukrainian flags that people put on their windows or the huge willingness to help or even accommodate refugees from Ukraine at home. And it's simply put, I think all these are symbols and actions uh, which are a novelty in the way European countries or host societies deal with refugees. And the, this emotional engagement and empathy It has often been explained by the fact that uh, refugees from Ukraine tend to be seen as white and Christian and are perceived to be culturally closer to some Europeans. To what extent do you think does our willingness to show solidarity and empathy uh, with refugee communities depend on perceived cultural kinship or did European societies in fact become better host societies over the past years? Oh, that's also a good question. Um, so I, in general, when I give my answers, I'm talking about like the average, right? Of course, there, there are plenty of people, I should also say, that did show solidarity with Syrians. You know, we did have plenty of those 
um, images and pictures of, you know, people at German train stations also holding up signs, um, being very welcoming to Syrians, at least in, in the early days. So I don't want to also paint this picture like nobody in Europe is welcoming. That's not true. But let's say the average sentiment um, no, I think it, there I really do think that solidarity and empathy with refugee communities de does depend on perceived cultural kinship. Um, I, I personally do not think that European societies became better host societies over the past years, um, let's say on average. However, I do think that we've had experiences that we could learn from um, that we, you know, there, there we know what kind of reception has happened in the past. There were also some, uh, let's say, structures put in place that could be used also um, in this case. But I think it really, really the, the kind of solidarity and empathy part, um, I really think that becomes much, much more now because of this cultural kinship, the closeness felt, um, but not only. I do also have to think it has to do a little bit with the, and not just a little bit, with the geopolitical situation. I think Russia being seen also as a clear aggressor, um, you know, Russia is very close to Europe. In some cases, it is a, it's part of Europe. Um, so I think this has made it very, very close to home for a lot of people where it might be a more difficult uh, for people to um, think about situations in Syria or in Afghanistan that feel just so not just culturally far, but also, uh, you know, far from a distance perspective. Um, so I do think that there are multiple things coming to play here, the cultural aspect, the kinship aspect, um, but also who is seen as the major perpetrator here in, in this regard also, I think does matter for these feelings of solidarity. Yeah. And, and by the way, this is by no means to say that the solidarity and empathy many show right now are not genuine or important. Of course. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I think it should be there in any such situation. And, and for me, it is very difficult not to think uh, of Afghanistan one year ago and the response you countries have put on back then, which was, a failure and, and also a manifestation of ignorance, mm -hmm. I would say. And I can imagine that for, for many refugees from elsewhere who had to undergo, I don't know, lengthy asylum processes and, and certainly were treated less favorably, this must be devastating. Um, but now the question is, should we put more attention to this right now? Or can we have that discussion once everything will be over? Because I mean, after all, the resources are limited, uh, which makes all this... Uh, a very difficult balancing act and and it would certainly also not be an option to say as long as we cannot treat everyone equally well it would be better to do nothing yeah so i think there are a couple of points here um you know there are some things that have surprised me so much about people's you know willingness to help and uh, and you know who is seen as worthy and all of these things i i i, I was in the the hairdressers, um, you know, shortly after everything started. And I overheard someone say, uh, you know, I met a Ukrainian refugee here in the Netherlands, you know, where we we're based. And she told me that this time a week ago, she was in her Pilates class, you know, and she was like, and then the person at the hairdresser said, you know, oh my gosh, that's just like me, you know? So it was somehow that people could really relate to this kind of very, I don't know, developed and very specific Western lifestyle, right? Whereas often when I would talk to people about Afghanistan, for example, 
they would say things to me like, well, these people are used to hardships. So this is just another day for them, which is just mind blowing to me. So because one group of people was seemed to already be more privileged and then their rights were taken away, we should somehow feel worse about this than a group of people who have already been in, let's say, a, um, a comparatively worse situation already that got even worse. And somehow, you know, people in Europe are like, well, that's kind of par for the course um, in those countries, which just is flabbergasting to me. You know, you already know it's bad. It gets worse. And somehow, you know, you're going to turn the other way and say, well, we can't help everyone, which, as you just mentioned, is I mean, just because you maybe cannot help everyone in the world does not mean you shouldn't help those that you can. Um, I think that is that that's really, really important. Um, you're right also that, of course, there are limited resources, but let's also be clear, Europe, North America, let's say the developed Western world has a lot of resources that they can put towards things that they want to put towards. I have always said, um, also with previous um, refugee situations, when, you know, countries said things like, oh, we don't have the capacity, whatever. I always said where there's a will, there's a way. And I think we're going to come come back to this maybe also in, in a bit. But um, and I think that's really important. And I, I don't think that it's a problem now if we at least point out the hypocrisy to a large extent of the situation we are in. That does not mean that we should not continue to show solidarity and, and, and make things, things work and put the effort and the resources where they should be. But I think we can also call a spade a spade um, already now. And definitely as things settle down, I think you're gonna see a lot, lot more analysis, which there's already plenty that, have, that has come out, you know, on uh, um, how these situations have been treated very, very differently. Um, I, you already mentioned, obviously, like Marie Le Pen and Orban taking a different stance. But there are some, uh, you know, there was really a really interesting piece that was put out um, by IP News. And uh, it was a, an opinion piece by Rachel Riley and Michael Flynn, in which it's titled A Tale of Two Refugee Crises, really, you know, showing the the clear differences between these situations and even taking quotes from the Bulgarian prime minister, for example, um, uh, um, Petkov, who recently said about people from the Ukraine, these are not the refugees we are used to. These people are Europeans. These people are intelligent. They are educated people. This is not the refugee wave we've been used to. People who um, we are not sure about their identity, people with unclear pasts, and could who even who, who could have even been terrorists. So, I mean, this quote is outrageous, right? I mean, by the Bulgarian prime minister basically saying they're Europeans for so they're different. Somehow that they are more intelligent and educated and somehow that makes them more worthy of being a refugee. You know, before when I gave the the refugee definition, it has nothing about being intelligent or educated, right? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, even talking about not being sure of identities and all of these things. I mean, it, it's just, yeah, uh, I, I find this just, you know, you know, quite incredible. And you have, as you said, the same thing um, from Orban, who said things like Ukrainians will be welcomed by friends from Hungary and that 
someone doesn't have to be a quote unquote rocket scientist to see the difference between masses arriving from Muslim regions in hopes of a better life in Europe and helping Ukrainian refugees um, that have come, come to Hungary because of war. I mean, it's just, you know, these are things that we all kind of knew were underlying a lot of the previous um, actions, but that they are so easily spoken out loud, I find really incredible. Yeah. The, the scale of the problem is just incredible, right? So, yeah, we are only at the beginning, but we should keep reflecting upon ourselves and our behavior as, as European societies. Before we, we move on to analyze some of the implications of the way uh, European countries are dealing with the current crisis in terms of migration policy, I would like to raise an issue that seems to be going a bit under the radar. Uh, I don't know if you agree. It's about the effects that the war in Ukraine could have on the rest of the world, and in particular, what impact those in turn could have on migration to Europe. Because I have the impression that in, in media and also in public debate, the Ukraine crisis is always treated as something isolated, yet many analysts and in fact also uh, UN Secretary General uh, Antonio Guterres have warned that the war in Ukraine will have very far-reaching consequences on the rest of the world. And in the context of, of the launch of a new UN uh, report on, on the systematic consequences of that war, Antonio Guterres said, um, we're now facing a perfect storm that threatens to devastate the economies of the developing countries. And this, of course, is highly relevant, I think, in, in light of what we have discussed up to this point, because uh, obviously the deterioration of the economic situation in developing countries will most likely lead to more migration to Europe and could then also put the current open refugee policy of many EU countries to the test. Do you think that's a realistic outlook? So... <laughs> I'm going to keep saying that that's a good question. So there, look, um, we know that there are going to be far reaching consequences of the situation in Ukraine right now. We already see, you know, a huge um, change in, in fuel prices and oil prices and food prices. Um, and this is going to be probably quite devastating for um, uh, quite a bit of the, the developing world. Um, the question here is more on how development and migration are linked. And uh, it's always not always so straightforward. Um, you know, When people have a severe lack of development, they often also lack the resources and capabilities to actually migrate. So on one hand, while there might be more of a necessity to migrate, there might be less of an ability to actually migrate. So I do think that we have to be a little bit careful there. Um, There are lots of things that are compounded here too, right? So it's not just oil prices and food prices. We still have the impacts of, you know, climate change and environmental disasters and risks and all kinds of things. So I, I think there's still a question mark about exactly how all of that is going to come together. Are we going to see more internal migration? Will we see more international migration? Will, uh, you know, is this going to also maybe lead to more conflicts, Also, um, so one thing is, you know, what we would consider maybe more voluntary migration. Of course, the voluntariness of migration, it, we should really see on a spectrum and not just as, yes, it's voluntary. I know it's not voluntary. Um, but could a, a lot of this deprivation lead to more conflicts and then more conflicts compounded also by other things also often lead to more displacement, whether or not that's internal or international. So I think we definitely need to keep a good eye on what's happening. Um, but I think it's a little bit hard to say right now from a mobility perspective, 
exactly what that effect is going to be because it's not only about what people want to do, but what they're also capable of doing. Yeah, yeah. Is it true that in a conflict that the, the more wealthy are always the first ones to get out? Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the more wealthy, those with the most resources, those with the highest socioeconomic status, those that have maybe dual nationalities or those that already have networks abroad are the first movers. Absolutely. And, and oftentimes, they're not even ones that necessarily claim refugee status in another country. When they see these things com coming, they, maybe they even have a second home in another country and they just decide to relocate. Um, maybe they also work for companies that they can work in different parts of the world and they relocate. Maybe they also um, decide to go study abroad somewhere that as an option. So what's interesting is that often the first movers are not even people who necessarily ask for asylum or ask for refugee status, but they get out of the country. Um, so I, I, I definitely think that's a, a point that should be kept in mind. Let's take a look at the material and, and physical constraints to hosting uh, refugees and, and how they look or if they are even there. Because uh, we are seeing right now that European countries have the capacity to host refugees in the millions if they want to. And I can imagine that from now on in political debates about refugees, the argument that there are physical material constraints so that there is no money, there's no space and whatever else, essentially what, what Ms. Le Pen said in 2015, they will be easy dismissed and and what i'm what i'm kind of getting at here is what factors influence a country's capacity to host refugees and also what role does the mood in civil society play in this yeah so i mean what feeds into the capacity is really i would say obviously the level of development of the country the infrastructure that's there the resources that are available and let's just be clear and honest that in in, in most Western developed countries, the capacity is there. The big question is always about the willingness. Um, and what I think was quite interesting about something that you said uh, with regard to a quote with um, Marie Le Pen, you know, in the previous times, you know, really looking at the um, asylum seeking in the 2015 period, she said, our country has neither the means nor the energy nor the desire to be more generous than it can be with the world's misery. So what I would agree with is that they didn't have the desire. <laughs> um, they absolutely had the means, but they did not have the desire. There was not that willingness um, to um, really to, to make these things happen. And, and uh, whenever there is a political will, there is a way. There have also been other times in history, if you think about also um, during the Balkan Wars and the large waves also of, of people from former Yugoslavia that also came into the EU, um, there were quite a lot of concessions made at that time also to help people come into, um, to come into Europe. Um, but what I find you know, baffling is that um, this is the first time that the EU directive to be able to just give um, direct humanitarian protection was triggered. Here, I have to interrupt Melissa for a moment. The EU directive she's talking about is the so-called Temporary Protection Directive, which dates back to the year 2001 and was triggered for the first time, as she said, in 2022 in the context of the Ukraine crisis. It is a directive, hence a piece of European Union legislation, which can be activated by the EU in situations where there is a large influx of displaced persons, which might potentially overwhelm the standard asylum systems of the member states. 
The directive grants certain rights to its beneficiaries, such as a residence permit for the period of protection, which can, by the way, last for up to three years, and access to suitable accommodation, asylum procedures, medical care and social welfare, and many other things. If you want to learn more about the directive, I recommend you go to the European Commission's website and search for temporary protection. There you will find some details as well as the directive itself. And it it has been suggested that it should have been triggered already during 2014-2015 situation and maybe even in, in earlier times. But there was really not that political will to do so. Now the directive was triggered. We're seeing a lot of um, very, uh, well, I should say quite well managed um migration and uh, and the possibility for humanitarian protection and people also moving on. Coordination is working quite well between member states. I'm not saying everything is easy. This is a lot of people in about a two-month time span, all right? It's, that's a lot. But that is so, so much more, as you've rightly pointed out, than we saw in the 2014, 15, 16, 17 period. And we've managed it, right? We have managed this in a pretty decent way. I'm not saying that, you know, there were never any mistakes made or other issues there or also definitely vulnerability issues um, um, that maybe we could have done a better job with. Uh, but I think the the important point here really is political will and, uh, and that society and governments are are willing to do these things. And when they are, we can always find a way. But do you think that um, th- that society maybe at this point is ahead of the legislator, maybe in some sense? Um, yeah, maybe a bit, because I think society's sentiment is very clearly in- on one side. I mean, I do think, well, the legislator, the triggering of this directive was great. Um, I-, I think, you know, why not do more? Why not? Why does it? Why is it on a one year temporary basis right now? We already know so much of Ukraine is destroyed. Um, you know, why isn't this just a blanket five-year um, residency? Um, you know, I think one thing that's not properly understood is that many people who are leaving now, they would love to return, but they're also realistic about the future. Um, you know, even once places are, let's say, quote-unquote, possible to return to, as in there's no more conflict, there's often not much to return to, right? I mean, things have been bombed, schools, hospitals, um, places of work. Um, It's going to take a long time for people to really be able to return in a meaningful way. And in the meantime, they have children that they're growing up. They need to, you know, there needs to be education. They're also looking to make sure that they can support their families. So in the medium, in the short to medium term, you know, people are really looking for, okay, where can we resettle and set up our lives for the foreseeable future. Um, And I think that's just a reality that Europe should get on board with and not just have a directive that gives people um, a blanket year of residence and access, but something for a bit longer too, because we know something that causes a lot of stress on people who are already very stressed, right? Because of the um, what they've seen, what they've had to experience, um, you know, the trauma that they've already had. Often, uncertainty about the future adds additional layers of trauma. And I think it's great that in this case, that people don't have so much uncertainty about the next year. Um, well, that's still to be debated. Let's say not as much uncertainty as other refugee or asylum-seeking groups, um, but they still have plenty of uncertainty about what happens after that year. Um, so I think there's, of course, much more that could be done in this regard. I think that ties in well with uh, another point about about the fact that, that basically normal people are, are doing 
a lot right now for refugees. And it kind of goes with this question, uh, if the legislators maybe lacking behind a bit, I was asking myself, is it possible that the societal commitment replaces possibly lacking state-controlled or, or governmental structures? Because I can imagine that in, in many countries of the EU, uh, the structures that would be necessary to ensure the integration and initial reception of, of so many refugees are not in place. For example, there are many reports from Germany saying that the interplay between regional and, and federal level structures does not work very well. And even that resources are being shifted away from other refugees to Ukrainian refugees. So I think that there's always a role for civil society. Um, and I think that civil society in many countries often does a good job of filling in the holes or the gaps that, let's say, um, governments leave behind. Um, I want to be careful about saying who should be doing what. But I think it's great to see an active civil society that can definitely help. And it's usually, you know, what we see with civil society is also that they're they're often more limber. They're often uh, um, they are better placed to be able to be to react very quickly um, and in a very agile way, which governments and I'm sorry to say the German government is often not known for being super agile. Right. Um, yes. <laughs> so there uh, I mean, and not just the German government, of course, I'm being a little bit um I've been a little bit cheeky here, but um, no, I mean, governments in general are known for being slow entities, whereas civil society, small, nimble organizations can often work very quickly. This is also not to say that um, governments should just give up their responsibilities and hand them all over to civil society. I think there's definitely a place there to work together. Coordination is also import very important, I should say. Um, but um, coordination should not come at the cost of just getting things done also. Yeah, and I think also the one problem that might that there there might be is 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 the question of sustainability of of this effort right because i i was once myself a, a volunteer in a refugee camp in, in 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 northern france near dunkirk and one thing i realized was that what 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 a great deal of endurance and commitment it takes to to make at least a small impact in in, in supporting refugees And uh, I, I just asked myself, how long are we able to sustain that? And, and I think this is probably also maybe where the, the, the government becomes crucial then. Yeah, so I definitely think governments have a, a role to play here. I think there are also things that can help make a lot of these things more sustainable. So the fact that you give uh, um, refugees or displaced people um, immediate access to the labor market, you know, meaning they have the right to work immediately. Um, children need to get immediate access to school. There needs to be immediate access to healthcare. Lots of these things that, you know, the longer it takes for this access to happen, then you're actually relying more and more on NGOs, on civil society organizations, on others to give support where displaced people themselves are very happy to, let's say, um, make their own way, you know, really contribute, you know, do what needs to be done. They want to be active members of society. So what we, what we can do to help them become active members of society as uh, as quickly and easily as possible will actually help with sustainability. Um, let them get on their feet as quickly as possible. Um, you know, also put, put policies in place, put programs in place that they where they can get in touch with locals and have buddy programs, um, give language tra training immediately, um, make sure that people know that they're going to have a clear path 
to, for example, citizenship in the future. Let people just get on with getting on with their lives. And this directly will lead to sustainability and will lead to less need for all of the additional assistance in the future. All right. Uh, that already brings us to, to the last part, which is the outlook. And I was wondering also because of all the things you just said that we see right now, do you think that the current situation has the potential to permanently change Europe's approach and to dealing with refugees in general? Is there a reason for hope? Okay, let's say there is always a reason for hope. Um, and I do think with every quote unquote shock that happens, that there is some kind of learning done. Um, I do think that this situation will fundamentally change to some extent the way we maybe deal with refugees in the future. Um, I, I already see, and I don't even want to say, oh, well, at the EU level or at the national level, I already see it also at very local levels. So there are a lot of initiatives right now that have been sparked because of the Ukrainian situation where local institutions are saying, hey, there's now this political will, the will also of the local population to do this. Let's go ahead and do this right now and extend it to all forced migrants. Um, so basically, the current Ukrainian crisis has basically been the catalyst for being able to set up more programs, more infrastructure, more ways of doing things for others too. And it would be naive to think that this is going to be our last wave of refugees that we receive in, in Europe. And I think um, the fact that we're now putting into place proper structures to some extent with this situation will also hopefully benefit people um, in the future or the, the next waves of refugees that we end up seeing here. So also the fact that the directive has been triggered and that we could see that Europe could work together, I think is a really good precedent for hopefully this being triggered again in the future when it's necessary. Um, so yeah, I don't want to be overly optimistic and naive about the change that we're seeing, but I do think there there is positive change there. Okay. Well, Melissa, that brings us to the end of this episode already. It was a very interesting conversation and hopefully we'll be able to welcome you back here on RPM Podcast in the future. Of Thank course. you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. This was the third episode of RPM Podcast, today with Melissa Siegel, Professor of Migration Studies at UNU Merit and Maastricht University. Thank you so much for listening in. I hope you enjoyed it. For great analysis on today's topic and many other important migration policy issues, I recommend Melissa's YouTube channel, which you can easily find under her name. You can also find Melissa on Twitter and online under melissasiegel.org. Finally, also make sure to follow RPM on social media to never miss another podcast episode or blog post and stay up to date with our activities and events. RPM Podcast will be back in about two weeks' time. Until then, take care and stay confident. Bye-bye.